Hello everyone, I hope you are all having a great day today. Uh, thank you for tuning in on today's episode of Adulting. My name is Peter Say and I'm going to be your host today. This is the podcast where we try and figure out when people become adults or not whether people think they're adults, whether people feel they're adults, everything having to do with this great mystery of adulthood. If you haven't listened to the last episode, uh, basically it was introducing, it was an introduction to the topic of adulthood, like the definition um, and some things that you can do as an adult, uh, minus being a minor, such as getting a tattoo and voting. So, on today's episode, we are going to be talking about, uh, interesting, interesting cases and, uh, instances of being a young adult uh so first we're going to talk about uh maybe like certain cases when kids so uh people under the age of 18 were being tried for crimes they committed as adults uh we're also going to be talking about when young adults become famous and are uh, expected to act mature, but they're still children. And we're also going to be talking about uh, things that you need to worry about when you become financially independent. So that's like things you need to pay for and watch out for and things like that. So... I guess without any any further delay let's just let's just dive right into everything okay so pretty much uh everyone everyone uh everyone dreams of being adults when they're children uh i guess it's because adults are just they they seem much much cooler than children because they're they're I mean physically they're they're taller they're more mature I guess I don't I don't know they're uh they're more responsible uh it's I guess it's just cooler to have more responsibilities rather than being a kid so everyone usually looks up to adults um, looks forward to being an adult when they're children. Now, with that uh, being said, 
most children, myself included, do not uh, think about all of the uh, responsibilities and all of the little intricacies when you become an adult. Like, when I was a kid, all I thought about was my... was going to school, hanging out with my friends, going home, doing homework, and then playing Pokemon. That's all I cared about as a kid. Uh, obviously, when you're an adult, you have to... You have to worry and think about much, much more than uh, friends and Pokemon, to say the least. There are a lot more things that you have to consider when you're an adult uh, versus a child. One of these uh, being crime, which is actually going to bring us right in to the first topic we're going to be discussing uh on this podcast, which is uh, cases where younger, maybe, I don't know, like early, early teenage, so early teenage kids being uh, tried as adults. So, um, already, already looking into this topic, uh, you, you notice just the a glaring, glaring uh, fact is that a child is being uh, tried f- as an adult for doing something as a child, which immediately brings in a bunch of complexities. Uh, it is very, very dependent. Um, there's actually a lot of factors that are dependent on how this can be viewed. It is very, very complex to view it from one angle. For instance, uh, I think the main main thing to look at is if the uh, child is mature enough to know the the weight of what they've done if the if the person is not uh matured mentally enough to understand the the severity of their crimes then more than likely they're probably not going to be tried as an adult they'll be tried as a minor and that'll usually come with uh less consequences okay so, the first case that we are going to look at is a case, it looks to be from, let me see, it looks to be early 2019. So, the, uh, so a 14-year-old Fort Worth girl was sentenced to 25 years for killing her best friend friend that is what this um article is titled and i think that we should look more into this because usually when people kill each other and go to prison they go to prison for more than 25 years so there had to be something else going on that i think that we should look into 
All right, so I'm going to, I guess I'll just read the article now. Uh, so I'll just read it uh, word for word as I see it to let you guys know what we're dealing with. Okay, so a girl found guilty of murdering her best friend was sentenced to 25 years in prison on Friday. Her sentence was imposed immediately, and she will be held in a Texas Juvenile Justice Department facility, according to Judge Alex Kim, who presided over the case. On or before her 19th birthday, the court will make a determination whether to transfer her to an adult prison or grant her some leniency. Uh, Nyla Lightfoot. 14, died early May 29th after being taken to John Peter Smith Hospital with stab wounds to her neck and chest after a fight at the Sycamore Center Villa apartment complex in South Fort Worth. The friend who killed her has been detained since the stabbing and will receive credit for time served according to the court. The murder trial for Lightfoot Friend began, began Thursday. The now 14-year-old was convicted of murder Thursday. I meant to say Tuesday earlier. So she was... So the trial began Tuesday, and she's she was convicted of murder on Thursday. And could have been sentenced to probation or as much as 40 years in prison according to prosecutors. The jury took about one hour and 20 minutes to convict the assailant and one hour and 10 minutes to sentence her. Okay, so already um, crazy, crazy, just horrible, gruesome story. Uh, uh, okay, I don't even, I don't want to get into that. Um, so yeah, she, so her... So it looks like uh, before her 19th birthday, which is strange because it's 18 in like all the states to become an adult. It is in all the, all the states, not like all of them, it's all of them. Uh, yeah, so when she turns 19, or before her 19th uh, birthday, the court will decide whether to transfer her to adult prison or or grant her leniency. And her other her sentences look like uh being sentenced to probation which if I'm not wrong probation is like you're you're basically free but you got to check into like a PO a parole officer every month or something and get drug tested I don't know stuff like that you're basically free or 40 years in prison which yeah that's a pretty steep uh sentence okay so uh moving on um the girl was found guilty of an aggravated assault allegation which arose from the teen allegedly swinging a kitchen knife at one of her other friends who tried to stop Lightfoot's killing, according to the girl's testimony. 
The friend, also 14, grabbed the arm of the assailant who continued to swing the knife around until the friend got scared and let go of her arm. Uh, the girl testified earlier this week. Lightfoot and the girl accused of stabbing her, who is not being identified because she is a minor. There's one right there. Because she is a minor, she will not be identified. Uh, it's to protect her identity and safety, I guess. Uh, anyway. Started arguing that day and early into the next morning. The girl testified Wednesday that she moved to Fort Worth from Memphis when she was 12. The assailant and Lightfoot met at school, and their friendship grew into what the girl described as sisterhood. Okay, so that is the, uh, that is the gist of the, uh, case. They ended up sentencing her to, uh, 25 years in, uh, prison. Doesn't say if it was, uh, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna assume it was adult, because it's prison. So, yeah, that's, uh, it's a lot to unpack. Uh, I think first, it's a it's a less glaring uh, thing, but her identity was preserved. Uh, it was not leaked because she is a minor, and that's because uh, there are laws which prevent, uh, which I guess protect children. Uh, in ca in cases like this, I guess. So her. Her identity uh, is still, it was hidden. Um, so, yeah. She was, so she was 14 when she did this. So, 14 years old, killed another friend at the same age as her. Tried as a kid. And eventually sentenced to 25 years. So, okay. Yeah, that's, uh... Yeah, that... That, you know... As... As messed up... As messed up as it is... Actually, I, I don't know. Because she, she killed someone. It... She was 14, but... She killed someone, and that that is a no light matter. Like it's probably the one of the worst things you could do. And yeah, she got she got the book thrown at her. So twenty five years. It could have been worse. If she was an adult, it it most definitely would have been worse. I think because she was a kid. Um. They they sentenced her to what would seem, I guess, as a reasonable punishment for a 14-year-old, which I guess is 25 years, which is still, like, absolutely wild. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's, that's all I really want to get into on that, uh, that case. So let's look at another another case okay so this one is yeah it's it's different from the last one because uh 
yeah, this one, this one, I, we should definitely look into. So, uh, this one is about the Thurston High School shooter. Uh, it says his name is Kip Kinkle, and he was sentenced to 112 years in prison. Uh, and this was ruled as constitutional. So I think we should look at the article. So I guess I'll read this as well. Um, okay, so it says, The Oregon Supreme Court on Thursday ruled that a nearly 112-year prison sentence for Thurston high school shooter Kip Kinkle is not cruel and unusual punishment, given the breadth and severity of his crimes. So yeah, this dude uh shot up a school and the court ruled that yes, he should be sentenced to 112 years in prison even though he did it as a minor, which yeah, I I'd have to agree on that one. All right, let's look further into this. Um Kinkle was 15 when he killed his parents in their Springfield home on May 20th, 1998 then showed up the next day at Thurston High with three guns hidden in his trench coat. He killed two classmates and wounded 24 others. Kinkle, now 35, appealed his sentence, arguing that it amounts to a life sentence without parole and violates the Eighth Amendment because he committed his crimes when he was a juvenile. Kinkle contends his long sentence falls under a 2012 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Miller v. Alabama. Their ruling found that mandatory life sentences for two 14-year-old murder defendants were cruel and unusual punishment because of their age. Uh, and then it goes on a little bit more to say that the 2012 decision has spurred a reevaluation of juvenile murder sentences. And then the Oregon Supreme Court was unpersuaded by Kinkle's arguments. Uh, and, and then this next part says, The court found that Kinkle's crimes reflected irreparable corruption rather than youthful immaturity that could change over time. It noted that Kinkle's sentencing judge found that he had an incurable illness, either paranoid schizophrenia or schizoactive disorder. Okay, so that's a lot to unpack there. So, uh... The dude who shot up a school uh, tried to um, defend his case by saying that the... Uh, so this is when he was 35. He appealed a sentence, arguing that it amounts to a life sentence uh, without parole. And he also goes on to say that the Eighth Amendment was violated there because he did this when he was 15. Now, because of his mental illness, uh, they believe he either has paranoid schizophrenia or a schizoactive disorder. The court, the judge, but believe, believed that uh, he was beyond help. So he is just this lost cause and he should just be locked away forever. Uh, which... 
I I don't really know. Uh, because, well, I guess if, I mean, he shot up a school though, so, yeah, it's it's rather justified uh, that he should be locked away. Um. So yeah, they believe he had schizophrenia, basically. Um. So moving on, it says the court found that it couldn't say. Hinkle's sentence was constitutionally disproportionate given the number of people he killed and injured. Okay, so he basically, he hurt and killed a lot of people, so his sentence uh, should not be, like, uh, changeable. Like, it should be cemented. So, yeah, that's basically that. Uh, dude, not in the right mind. He, he isn't well mentally, shot up a school when he was 15, and they tried him as, well, they tried him and as an adult and gave him 112 years. So yeah, that's, uh, that's that case uh, in a nutshell. So I think we're, uh, I think we're good. There's tons and tons of articles like this i could talk about these for hours but i really don't want to because this is dark and depressing and i think we should move on uh okay so yeah let's move on to the next topic one with much less uh death and sadness so i think next we're going to be looking into when uh young adults so teenagers and maybe 18s, 19s become famous, and they need to act like adults because they're now in the public eye, and they need to act less like a kid and more like an adult. So let's look a little bit into this. Okay, so I think, uh, so first let's kind of, let's kind of explore this idea this is pretty interesting uh so i guess when young people uh are are uh are thrust into the spotlight i don't, I don't know like people like justin bieber or uh i can't really think of any shot like young like really young singers that kind of grew up in the spotlight uh, I guess, I guess, uh, hmm. Miley Cyrus, I guess that's another one. Uh, so that's really, it's interesting to think about because those two, uh, people were just normal kids and then all of a sudden they were just thrust into just this, this, uh, this landscape, I guess you would call it because they're, they're young they're basically still children's, but they are more, they are definitely viewed more as adults. If, when I think of a child, like young adult celebrities, I usually think of uh, like Miley Cyrus, uh, Justin Bieber, you know, you know, people like that uh, who just get thrust into the spotlight. Like, one second they're a kid, then they, they I don't know, they, they get famous by singing songs or whatever. 
and then bam they're treated basically as adults but they're still kids like nothing's changed up there they didn't just all of a sudden jump from i don't know 14 15 to bam early 20s it like no they're still kids they definitely should not be looked at as adults a prime example here actually comes back to Miley Cyrus. Um, so one instance is that uh, she, when she was 17, she got into a Hollywood club, which was 21 and over, and she partied there until 1.30 a.m., according to this article. Uh, so... Yeah, this this club. If she was not famous, let's let's think about this for a second. Let's put on her thinking caps. If a seventeen-year-old girl, who everyone knows is seventeen, tries to get into a place which is twenty-one and over, like strictly twenty-one and over, because they're definitely like serving alcohol or something like that. I and like the bouncer or whoever is out there knows that she is underage. They are not going to let her in. But because she was famous, uh, I mean, obviously they let her in, which is it's just it's wild. Like there's like so much that could have gone wrong. Like, there's so many legal things that come into this. Like, the uh, this club could lose its, like, liquor license. Could get in serious legal trouble for letting in this underage, like, actual kid. But no, they just, they, they just let her in. Which is wild. So, yeah, that's the, that's the first one. All right, this uh, this next one um, is about Justin Bieber, and this was when he was arrested for drag racing and driving under the influence. Just a just a double header right there. Some real big brain actions. Okay, so I remember this was this was a while ago. Uh, I think this was, yeah, I think this was when he was underage. So, oh no, okay, so he was actually, he was 19. So, I guess this is like a case of, technically he's an adult, but maybe not really fully mature yet. So, like, young adult, uh... So, yeah, this was when he was 19. Uh, he was arrested after drag racing a yellow Lamborghini. And he, the officer said that he smelled of alcohol and swore when he was pulled over. So, I don't know about anyone else, but this was definitely not something that most 19-year-olds would be doing. Uh, that is definitely, that is definitely like a, 
a it's it's a celebrity thing to do which just think of it if he was a random dude so let's let's change up the uh if he was just a uh random dude who got caught uh drag racing and driving under the influence he would have been seen as just like a a deadbeat kind of like Oh man, this dude doesn't have any control of his life. Uh especially if he was under eight or uh underage. That'd be like doubly bad. But for whatever reason, because he is a celebrity, it was seen as him being just like I don't know. It's it's weird. It's like it's in a way it's like him being rebellious and like not nearly as bad or trashy. And I that that's just really wild that fame will just do that. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. Uh I don't really know where else to go with that topic. Uh, so I guess we'll just move on to our last topic for the the episode, and that is going to be looking into all of the uh, the things you need to worry about, like financial things you need to worry about when you're uh, physically independent from your parents or guardians. So like when you're on your own, when you're an adult. Okay, so um, let's kind of let's think about this because uh, this is pretty pretty interesting as well. Uh, all right, so let's look at let's just think about I don't know a basic adult lifestyle like right out of college. So let's say there's someone who's 25. And, like, they're out of college, they're two years into their professional career, and they've got, I don't know, they got a decent job. They're, they're making money. Uh, I think we should look at where all of that money is going to go, because once you're an adult and you're on your own, there's a lot of expenses and responsibilities that you have to worry about. Alright, so, let's say, so let's start uh, with the house. So, thinking for this person, more than likely they're going to be living in an apartment. I don't, I don't think they would have a house yet. So, an apartment. Let's go with, I don't know, two bed, two bath. I don't know, something... Something kind of normal. Uh, so, let's see. Two bedroom apartment. Let's see how much this would be. Okay. So, usually, a, uh, so like a two bedroom apartment is gonna be around two grand a month. If it's not in the worst of areas, 
and it's decent. So you're in you're in your house. You you gotta at least pay I don't know, X amount of dollars. It's gonna be at least a thousand. Let's just go let's just go with seventeen hundred. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a number. So that's seventeen hundred dollars a month uh that you gotta pay to live somewhere. And then okay, so next thing is a car. This is where things get a little interesting. So let's let's say that this is like young adult not not driving like a like a station wagon or an SUV. This is like a young adult car. So let's let's just go let's just go with a mm, let's go with a Subaru Impreza. So a Subaru Impreza or any like you know basic four-door sedan is is gonna go for at least 20 20 grand total which means you gotta put a down payment on a car which is usually about 10 percent of the total cost so maybe around two grand right out of your pocket and then it's x amount of dollars a month for however many months so I don't know, maybe $200 a month for three years. I don't think that math adds up, but it's something along those lines, you know. It's it's X amount of dollars each month. So that's on top of your apartment. So by now, you're probably paying close to two grand a month just for home and car. Uh, the thing is, is that things go wrong with homes and cars. So like repairs are going to be expensive and you got to save money for those in ca- just in case. So you got to be mindful of that that 2 grand or I don't know about 2 grand that you're spending a month for a house and a car. And plus any repairs that might happen so you got to save on top of that. And that's not even that's like the beginning of the list. So we, let's go on to like, I don't know. So you also got to pay for groceries. So like food, uh, drinks. So that might be, I don't know, maybe 200 bucks a month. I, I, I don't know. I don't, hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean. Maybe less, probably a lot less, but it's also a number. I have no idea. Uh, yeah. So that you got to worry about groceries on top. You got to keep yourself fed. Uh, electricity, water, that kind of stuff. But you're also gonna want insurance. Insurance is gonna save you if anything bad happens to your your property and you can't pay for it they're going to pay for it and fix it if you have good coverage and a good plan so that's also expensive and it's just these costs like racking up on top of each other that you have to be informed about or you're going to be swamped uh and yeah it's like when you're an adult you really got to learn how to manage and save your money. 
Like that's going to make or break you when you're a young adult out there on your own for the first time. You got to save more than you spend. Uh, if you if you spend more than you save, then you're going to be in trouble down the line when something bad happens. Just basically, it it ends up like that. Okay, so to uh kind of bring an end to this uh, episode. I have a video that is, uh, it's about the drinking age in America, and it's about how a bunch of presidents of colleges got together and wanted a nationwide audience, like a nation, uh, national debate on why they think they should lower the drinking age. Uh, they believe that, um... It has it has not stopped underage drinking, and they actually think it has increased it. So let's give that a uh, listen to. Last fall, a group of over 100 college presidents, including the heads of Dartmouth, Virginia Tech, and Duke, signed a declaration stating that the 21-year-old drinking age is not working, and fireworks went off. But the presidents got what they wanted, a national debate about the drinking age. When the age was raised to 21 in the mid-1980s, the goal was to reduce highway fatalities. But everyone knows that the 21-age limit hasn't stopped minors from drinking. And now some experts believe it's actually contributing to an increase in extreme drinking. This is what the former president of Middlebury College in Vermont, John McArdle, believes, and it's why he has started the movement dedicated to lowering the age back to 18. It may seem counterintuitive, but he argues that lowering the age will make kids safer. Now, you're going to see a lot of young people drinking in this story. Undoubtedly, some of them are under 21. Where did you get the alcohol from? I, I got it from a friend. It's like the old days of prohibition. From the suburbs to college campuses to inner cities, kids find ways to get around the 21-year-old limit. You're 15, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got to call your parents. As John McArdle of Middlebury College puts it, it's so widespread, it's the norm. This law has been an abysmal failure. It hasn't reduced or eliminated drinking. It has simply driven it underground, behind closed doors, into the most risky and least manageable of settings. Like basements, fraternity houses, and locked dorm rooms, where kids go to hide from the law and from adults, including parents, who might teach them some moderation. McArdle says the law has created a dangerous culture of irresponsible and reckless behavior, unsupervised binge and extreme drinking. This is called 6 and 10, downing six cups of beer in 10 seconds. Kids try to perfect the art of getting drunk as fast as possible by playing drinking games and preloading, downing as much of the forbidden fruit as possible before going out in order to avoid getting caught drinking in public. What have you been drinking? What have you been drinking? What you, hey, hey. It's bad law in that it is unworkable. Uh, it's bad social. Well, is it unworkable or people just don't enforce it? The issue of enforceability is, is present, but the fact is it is so regularly and routinely uh, avoided 
uh, that enforcement of uh, results in two arrests or convictions for every thousand violations. We're, we're not in a situation where we can stop it. The best we can do is yeah. try to contain it. Mark Beckner, the chief of police in Boulder, Colorado, a college town, deals with underage drinking every day. So you're basically telling us that you simply can't enforce the law. They are drinking and you cannot enforce it? Well, we do enforce it, but what we're seeing is it's not being effective. Beckner has tried many different kinds of enforcement techniques over the years, including strict crackdowns. We find a party where we know there's underage drinking, we would seal the house, surround the house with officers, and we would write every single uh, underage person coming out of that house. We wrote hundreds and hundreds of tickets those years. All we did is we pushed it further underground. For that reason, he is one of the few chiefs of police in the country who publicly agrees with McArdle and supports lowering the drinking age. So what's the advantage to lowering the age to 18? The overall advantage is we're not trying to enforce a law that's unenforceable. The abuse of alcohol and the overconsumption of alcohol and DUI driving, those are the areas we've got to focus our efforts, not on chasing kids around trying to give them a ticket for having a cup of beer in their hand. Part of Beckner's jurisdiction is the University of Colorado at Boulder, known as one of the country's top party schools. Boulder was the scene of the terrible tragedy of Gordy Bailey. Gordy was 18, a freshman at the university in 2004. He had been there only one month when he underwent a Chi Psi fraternity initiation with 26 other pledges also underage. Leslie and Michael Lanahan are Gordy's mother and stepfather. They went off to the mountain and asked them to drink 10 gallons of alcohol in half an hour. Not beer, alcohol, hard alcohol. Hard alcohol and wine combined. You were certainly viewed as a better man if you could handle more. So how much, do you know how much Gordy actually drank? He'd had 15 to 20 shots if you had to measure it. They were not putting it in shots and drinking, it was just guzzling it out of the neck of the bottle. By the time the group got back to the fraternity house, Lanahan says that Gordy was incapacitated. His eyes were rolling back in his head and uh, he couldn't walk, and this isn't something, somebody that just had too much to drink. Yeah. He, was, he was clearly um, uh, in trauma. Lanahan says that the fraternity brothers put Gordy on the library couch and just left him there alone. The president of the fraternity did ask several brothers at intervals to go in and take Gordy's pulse, as if to say, tell me if he's alive or dead. So he's on a couch, mm -hmm. passed out mm -hmm. for hours? And hours Nine and hours. hours? Nine hours. Nine hours. Nine hours. And no one called for help. Right. 911, where's your emergency? I need to get an ambulance. What's going on? Uh, we got a guy who's passed out. He drank way too much. We found him this morning. Is he breathing? Uh, I don't know. He's not waking up. Gordy died alone in an empty room with his friends surrounding him. And it's just, it's just uh, very preventable, just yeah. inexcusable. Gordy died of alcohol poisoning. To try and prevent another senseless death, the Lanahans created the Gordy Foundation to spread the word about the dangers of alcohol abuse. And recently, they released Haze, a film about excessive drinking on college campuses. I need to get help. If the drinking age had been 18 instead of 21, would the kids have called for help when Gordy passed out? I think so.
So because it was illegal, you think that's why they didn't call? I think that's right. Do you agree with that? Well, they had, um, they had alcohol in the fraternity house, which was against their policy. They had minors buying the alcohol, serving the, the alcohol to minors. They had to make a decision about uh, what they were going to do, and unfortunately, they made the wrong decision. John McArdle points to the story of Gordy Bailey as one reason he supports lowering the drinking age to 18, which, after all, he says, is the age when we're considered adults for most things. Ready? One, two, three. Like firing a weapon and putting your life on the line in battle. Why don't we trust these young adults uh, to make the same kind of responsible decisions about alcohol that we believe them capable of making in the voting booth, uh, in the jury box, uh, on the battlefield? The inconvenient truth is that a drinking age at 18 uh, would cause more funerals. 900 families a year would have to bury a teenager. Chuck Hurley is executive director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or MAD, which was a major force behind raising the drinking age to 21 back in 1984 because of increased traffic fatalities from drunk teenage drivers. We know that drinking plus driving spell death and disaster. When uh, the United States reduced its drinking age in the 70s, it was a public health disaster. Uh, death rates in the states that reduced their uh, drinking age jumped to 10 to 40 percent. You mean immediately? So you immediately, could see... Same month. When the, literally when the drinking age cause and effect. was reduced, uh, the next month uh, the fatalities started to jump. When the drinking age was increased, uh, the fatalities fell. After the drinking age was raised to 21, the number of traffic fatalities among 18 to 20-year-olds declined by 13 percent, which is why Hurley has some public health organizations on his side. Well, we're delighted uh, to be working with the American Medical Association, uh, with the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, with the National Safety Council, with the International Association Chiefs of Police, with the Governor's Highway Safety Association, with the Surgeon General of the United States, with the U.S. Transportation Secretary. There are a list of impressive organizations that have lined up against you. Oh, yes. They feel that you have no data to back up what you're saying, that you, that what you're proposing would be basically an experiment. Well, I think that, first of all, we need to understand that lives are being put at risk off the highways in increasing numbers year by year as a result of increasing this Increasing numbers. That number of lives lost to alcohol by 18 to 24-year-olds is going up at an alarming rate. It isn't just about lives lost on the highways. So what we have is a conundrum a law that has reduced highway deaths may, according to McArdle, be contributing to an increase in off-highway deaths. The Surgeon General says more than 3,000 Americans under the age of 21 are dying every year of alcohol-related causes other than driving, including homicide, suicide, and alcohol poisoning. That's a full bottle, Sherry, baby. These chilling statistics appear to have little impact on behavior. As evidenced by a quick tour of the Internet, websites glorify excessive drinking and even teach kids how to get loaded in a few seconds. I'm about to attempt the super Irish car bomb. Yep. It consists of two and a half Guinness, three shots of Brady's, which is basically Bailey's liquor, and three shots of whiskey. 
And this is a really, really bad idea. <laughs> These bad ideas are so common and popular, YouTube and collegehumor.com are used like instruction manuals. Yeah. Chuck Hurley of MAD says the answer is not lowering the age to 18. That, he contends, would just increase the availability of alcohol to even younger adults. Guess what's going to happen in high school? Literally, the trickle-down approach. So what you're saying is 18-year-olds today get 21-year-olds to go get them liquor. You're saying 15-year-olds would get the 18-year-olds. Yeah, that's, that is that. what we're saying. Is it your goal to eliminate all drinking among people under 21? Yes. And is that realistic? No. <laughs> <laughs> Flat out uh, not. Well, I mean, it, it, our goal really would be, in an ideal world, to eliminate underage drinking. Uh, but you know believe, you're not going to do it. Well, we know that it's very difficult. John McArdle thinks even aiming for abstinence is impractical. And besides, he thinks the real problem is alcohol abuse, excessive and binge drinking. And so he has a proposal that accompanies his plan to lower the age to 18. Alcohol education is what we need, and that is a very important part of our proposal. And by that, I don't mean temperance lectures, and I don't mean prohibition, nor do I mean encouragement to drink. What he does mean is mandatory classes in high school that would include the chemistry of alcohol, the physical consequences of abuse, and sitting in on AA sessions. Passing an exam would result in a license to drink. So what you're saying is alcohol education would be like driving education. That's a good analogy. You'd have to take the course. There'd be a test. You'd get the license. If you violate it, the license is taken away. Right away. That's right. And, and think about that analogy. It would never occur to us to say to a young person, once they reach driving age, here are the keys. Uh, good luck. Go figure it out. McArdle thinks this idea, testing and licensing, is better than leaving things the way they are. Given the vast opposition to lowering the age, his chances of succeeding are slim. But as a history professor, he says, it comes down to what we already know. We have lived through prohibition. We know prohibition doesn't work. We know that on our college campuses, we know that in our households, we know that in the military, we know that in non-college America as well. Legal Age 21 seeks to impose prohibition on young adults, and that's the way, and in my view, the only way to look at this question. Okay, uh, that's going to be it for today. I uh, really hope you have a great rest of your day, and I hope to see you next time on our next episode of Adulting.